Amen. Hey, love Chapel Hill. So good to be with you again. Thank you, Ryan, for leading us so beautifully this morning. Uh, not just with your voice, but with your spirit that was so clear and beautiful. Um, I want to also thank our friend Val, who preached for us two weeks ago uh, to start off uh, 2022 uh, as we're moving through the Gospel of Luke together, and our friend Elena, who preached last week. And we're going to pick up where they left off today. Uh, we are in Luke chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 14 through 21. Uh, again, continuing with this journey that we're on together through the gospel of Luke that's going to take us over the next several months uh, together as we walk through the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Here's what it says. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus, thank you for the power of your words in your word. Thank you for the power of this sermon that you deliver that is presented to us here as a, as a launch of your ministry in so many ways. Thank you for the way that it gives such a beautiful description of what your kingdom looks like. And thank you for the way that it is challenging us to enter in to that project with you, to enter into this movement with you that has started in your name and is, and is moving forward in the power of your name. And so we ask that you would challenge us today, show us the places where you are drawing us in, where you are asking us to take a next step and to experience the freedom that you promise, to experience the release that you promise, and to be a part of that for the community around us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So as we're moving uh, through this passage, we're going to just kind of go line by line and piece by piece here uh, to walk through this together. And so we get this moment. Uh, early in the ministry of Jesus, according to the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus uh, launches his ministry in many ways uh, here in his own hometown synagogue. And so a synagogue is, is important for us to know in, in the context of Jesus's day uh, is a center of, of worship, um, but it's all, mostly it's, it's the centerpiece of the shared 
scripture life of the people, the Torah life of the Jewish community uh, centers around the activity of the synagogue. So through the week, uh, it's a place of education, of teaching the scriptures. Um, and on the Sabbath day, it is a place where the community gathers together uh, and enters into worship together. There's the public reading of scripture. Uh, there is singing, there is praying together. Uh, and there's always a sermon uh, or a teaching on one of those selected passages uh, for that Sabbath day. And so we see Jesus entering into this as, as a part of his culture. Uh, oftentimes Jesus gets presented as rejecting um, the, the religion of his day and, and, and rejecting Judaism. And we don't see Jesus doing that. Instead, what Jesus comes to do is to fulfill that and to bring it to completion and its full wholeness. He's not rejecting. He is reforming and restoring and renewing and making it what it was designed to be from the very beginning. We see this as a continuation uh, of the story and this fulfillment of the story. And so oftentimes you're going to see uh, Jesus showing up in the synagogue of a local community, and that's where he begins his ministry there in that community. Then, of course, he goes beyond the synagogue and engages with the broader community in so many different ways. Um, for Luke, we see him doing this um, throughout the Gospel of Luke. And it's really interesting, as, as we've said before, Luke is also the author of another New Testament book, the book of Acts. And so in the gospel of Luke, he's telling the story of the life of Jesus. Then in the book of Acts, he's telling the story of the life of the church uh, that explodes as this kingdom movement on the other side of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so we see Jesus following this pattern of starting in the synagogues and then moving into the broader community. And also in the book of Acts, Luke shows us that Paul follows the same pattern. Paul, the chief missionary of the early church, as he's going into these new communities, he'll often start with a synagogue. Um, for a Jewish community, uh, even outside of, um, of this region here, for, for them to have a synagogue, it required the presence of 10 Jewish men. And so if there were at least 10 Jewish men in a community, they would form a synagogue for the Jewish people of that community. Uh, and so we see Paul going and starting there and then his ministry expanding uh, out of that. So it's a really interesting, similar pattern that we see in both of these books, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so as Jesus engages with this uh, normal part of his culture, it says he, he did this every week. This was part of his custom to be at the Sabbath uh, worship experience in the synagogue. And as he is there in his hometown, it says that he is the one who stands and gives the reading from the prophets that day. And so this tells us that whoever um, the overseer of that synagogue was, they recognized something special in Jesus and having him back in his hometown, word is already spreading about his ministry and having him back in his home, hometown, uh, they wanted to honor him by giving him that moment of, of reading uh, from the prophets for that day. And so here we see him reading from Isaiah, and this is specifically from Isaiah chapter 61. 
Uh, Isaiah 61 is a core passage for Love Chapel Hill. Uh, before we ever even started meeting for worship, this was a, a passage that we were rooting ourselves in and a passage that continues to bear fruit in the life of our church. Um, and, and, and here we have Jesus selecting this passage um, to read in this moment of, of launching, in many ways of launching his ministry in the Gospel of Luke. And so Isaiah is a key prophet, the most quoted prophet uh, in all of the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament writers quote the prophet Isaiah more than any other prophet. Uh, we're really familiar of the way, uh, with the way that the New Testament writers quote Isaiah to talk about the arrival of the Messiah and the, the, the prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. And so around Advent, we're always hanging on the words of Isaiah. Uh, but here we see Jesus, the Messiah himself, quoting Isaiah, not just to say uh, about his arrival, but to give an outline and to give some definition of what his mission is going to be about. In fact, in many ways, what we get here in this passage is a table of contents for what is going to come through the rest of the gospel of Luke. Again, we see an interesting connection between the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts because Luke does this in the book of Acts as well. At the beginning of the book of Acts, we have Jesus uh, who is about to ascend to heaven, and he tells his disciples and the apostles uh, to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out on them, they will become his witnesses uh, to Jerusalem, the city where they would receive the Holy Spirit, and Judea, the surrounding Jewish area, and Samaria beyond that foreign area and home to their enemies as they saw it. And then beyond that, it says to end to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly the pattern that the book of Acts follows. It starts in Jerusalem. It moves outward until it ends with Paul as a prisoner of the Roman empire and Rome being the center of the world at the time and seen as the ends of the world. Uh, and so we get a similar thing happening here in the Gospel of Luke, too. So we see the same author using the same kind of outline and same kind of pattern. Um, right at the beginning, he places this here to set up the rest of the book and to say, this is what Jesus came to accomplish. And this is what you're going to watch him accomplish as you move through the pages of this story together. You're going to watch it unfold in story after story, event after event, engagement after engagement. You will see Jesus living this out. So we see that pattern in both books. So what is this table of contents? What is this uh, declaration of the mission? As Jesus is reading through Isaiah 61, he chooses to begin with this passage here. We're going to go line by line here through this, these prophetic words of Isaiah. Jesus, echoing the words of Isaiah, says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. The spirit of the Lord is on me. We're going to stop right there first, uh, because again, we're going to see a theme here that's important. We're going to see it over and over again throughout the gospel of Luke as we move through this together. Uh, Luke is obsessed with the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three in one, three distinct persons, one God. 
And Luke is fascinated with and obsessed with the Holy Spirit. We understand that in the book of Acts. That's undeniable throughout the book of Acts, but it's also so plainly here in his gospel as well as he tells the story of the life of Jesus. Uh, it starts with John the Baptist, uh, the, the, the angel prophesying that John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. That's in Luke chapter 1. Uh, also there at the very beginning, uh, the, the angel tells Mary that the Holy Spirit will move on her and she will conceive Jesus by the power of God himself, conceived by the Holy Spirit, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, right there at the beginning. Then we've got Elizabeth, who is carrying John the Baptist, the mother of John the Baptist. When Mary, her cousin, comes to meet Elizabeth, when Mary speaks to Elizabeth, it says that John the Baptist leaps in her womb at the sound of Mary's voice. That's amazing enough, right? But then what happens next? It says, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Powerful. And so we see this all the way through. And as Val talked about a couple of weeks ago uh, at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, as the father speaks this word of affirmation over Jesus at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the sky opens and it says the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. Next, in what Elena was talking about last week, it's the Holy Spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and sustains Jesus through that temptation. And now this section leads with Jesus coming back from that temptation and he's moving and he's operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, it says. And so Jesus begins here that he is anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is on me. Luke is obsessed. The person, the work of the Holy Spirit, a massive theme running through both of his books like a mighty river through the middle of this landscape. If you've ever seen a community, uh, maybe a rural, a rural town or even a large city uh, that was historically built on a river, and you can see like the prominence of that river in the life of that town or city that grows up around it and it's dependent on the commerce there and the life is all operating around the flow of that river that's what it's like for these books for the gospel of luke and for the book of acts the holy spirit holding the whole thing together beautifully this central massive theme the person and the work of the holy spirit jesus goes on the holy spirit is on me and he has anointed me. He has anointed me. Now, everyone hearing this uh, would have recognized the importance of that word anointing. Two pieces from their history would have immediately come to mind for people who are immersed in the scriptural imagination of the people of Israel. They would have remembered the prophets and the kings, the prophets and the kings. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the prophets are, are spoken of as being anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit rests on them and empowers them to speak the word of God to God's people. 
And then the prophets will then anoint the kings and pour oil over the heads of the kings at this coronation moment to show that the spirit of the Lord is on them and is resting on them to empower them to lead the people with the wisdom and with the heart of God. So the prophets who speak the words of God to the people, the kings who lead with the heart of God for the people. And both use this imagery of anointing. And so we see this in what Jesus is saying. He is a prophet in the sense that he is speaking the words of God. In fact, he is the word of God made flesh. And so he is the living word of God right in front of us anointing. And he is the king. He's the fulfillment, the hope of all of Israel, this king that they have been waiting for. He is the fulfillment of that. And he is anointed by the Holy Spirit as the living word and as the king who has come to bring the kingdom and establish the kingdom of God as it has always been promised. In fact, those two words that we use to describe Jesus and we see them throughout the New Testament, so key throughout the New Testament, the words Messiah and Christ, both of them mean anointed one anointed one. So Jesus is, is echoing the words of Isaiah and bringing new layer of meaning here by claiming that mantle of the anointed one, the Messiah. That's the Hebrew version of the word and Christ. That's the Greek version of the word, the anointed one. This is who he is. He's the fulfillment of every prophet's prophecy, and he is the king who has come to establish the kingdom of God here and now. What is that kingdom going to look like? Jesus goes into the next line here and he says, the spirit is on me and he's anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim good news to the poor. Now here's where uh, a lot of people get really tangled up when we talk about the ministry and the work of Jesus. Um, when Jesus refers to the poor here, um, is he talking about in a spiritual sense or is he talking about in a physical sense? It, are we supposed to spiritualize this or are we supposed to take this literally and materially when we think about the poor? Is this spiritual or is this physical? Yes. All right. The answer is yes. It's both. And you cannot deny that it's physical when you look at the ministry of Jesus and see how specifically he targets the poor in his mercy and grace and how he himself becomes poor intentionally. We get so much context uh, from the Gospels that tell us that um, from what we understand, Jesus was most likely himself homeless, that Jesus was most likely himself homeless and so we know that this means that it's at least physically, but we also know with Jesus that he's bringing the, the, the both and of the kingdom and he's bringing these together to say, yes, it is both. It's also the spiritually poor, maybe those who materially have everything but are bankrupt spiritually because they're putting their hope and their strength in things that cannot hold and things that will never bring hope or fulfillment. And so it is absolutely both. And so his good news is to the poor. It's this broad kind of 
good news. I had a mentor who asked me that question one time. Is your life good news to the poor? Is your life in Christ good news to the poor or is it just more of the same? Is it just more of the same old status quo kind of story? We see that Jesus's life was good news to the poor, to those who are physically, materially poor, and to those who were spiritually poor. This is part of the beauty of the kingdom that he has come to establish, the king and his kingdom. Many times we try to compartmentalize Jesus and make the teachings of Jesus only about the spiritual. And these are people who want to focus on Jesus as king. And there are others who want to compartmentalize Jesus on the other side and, and make his, his teachings only physical. And these are people who want the kingdom and, and, and love the teachings of the kingdom and want to see that here and now, but they don't want to live under the reign of the king. And the reality is you cannot compartmentalize those any more than you can divide Jesus from himself. Jesus is whole. Jesus is complete. Jesus is in his integrity. He is integrated. Jesus is all of that, both together. It is yes. And we are not living full gospel good news lives unless we're responding to both. This word good news, that's where we get the word gospel uh, in our language today. And so gospel uh, is, a, is a word from the Greek that means good news. That's the translation of the word gospel, good news. And the call of the gospel and the invitation of the gospel is to accept the king as your king and savior. And it's also to live with him in this engaging life of the kingdom, to be a part of living out the reality of the kingdom here and now. So many times we reduce the gospel to the question of where are you going to go after you die? The gospel asks so much more of us than just to answer that question. We often reduce the gospel down to, have you said the prayer to ask Jesus into your heart to become your Lord and Savior? Is that important? Obviously, obviously a life that is surrendered to Jesus, that embraces the grace that he's given to us, that he's won for us through his death on the cross, through the power of his resurrection. We must embrace that and give ourselves to that and surrender ourselves to that. But then he goes beyond that. And he also asks us to live and to walk in the reality of his kingdom and to live out the reality of his kingdom everywhere we go. We have to live both. We cannot compartmentalize the gospel. We have to preach the full good news of the king and of the kingdom that he came to bring of the cross of salvation, that salvation comes through Christ alone, through the grace of Jesus alone, through faith in Jesus alone, and that it doesn't stop there, that that grace continues to roll out and salvation continues to roll out. Rescue continues to roll out through the way that we live our lives. So we have the cross of salvation through Jesus and we have the culture of salvation that he came to establish. There is spiritual renewal that leads to social reform that brings about a kingdom 
renaissance. And we cannot divide those realities against each other. They are all happening together in the person of Jesus. The cross of salvation, the culture of salvation, the king and the kingdom. Have you responded to the full gospel? Have you responded to the full invitation of the gospel? For some of you, that means embracing Jesus as your savior and saying, I want to follow him. I'm going to lay down my life, take up his cross and his life. I embrace what he did for me on the cross and the salvation that he won for me, the forgiveness of sins that he is offering to me and the made new life that is possible, the regenerated life that is possible through the grace of Jesus, new life. I need to embrace that today. For some of you, that's the challenge of the gospel that you need to embrace. And for others of you, the full invitation of the gospel is telling you, yes, you've embraced that, but now he's calling you to engage in the fulfillment of his kingdom, the reality of his kingdom. Is your life good news to the poor? Is your life release for the oppressed? Is your life sight for the blind? Walk with him. Keep moving with him down that road that he has invited you into with him. Have you responded to the full invitation of the gospel in which peace might be missing in your life today? We'll move through the rest of these more quickly here. Uh, but Jesus goes on to say, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Immediately for the people hearing this, they're going to remember the context of their history. They're going to remember the Exodus story, how God brought them out of slavery in Egypt and through the wilderness to the promised land. Elena did a beautiful job of tying together so many of the echoes from that story, from their history with what Jesus goes through in the wilderness temptation. Beautiful job tying that together. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, who's writing this, his context is going to be exile. And he's prophesying the, the reality of the exile and how God's going to redeem his people on the other side of that. And the people in Jesus's day are experiencing this as well, as they're under the oppressive reign of the Roman Empire. And so we have all of these pieces of context happening together here. And again, Jesus is saying, is this spiritual or physical? Yes. Yes, it is both. And he's come to bring freedom for the prisoners. And at times that means that we have to be engaged with the reality of real, uh, real time captivity in our world today, uh, whether that looks like human trafficking through modern day slavery or other forms of that bondage that we need to be a part of breaking the chains and being a part of ushering in the freedom of the kingdom through the grace of Jesus. But also it means spiritually. There are some of us who are bound up, some of us who are chained up spiritually, and he's offering release and freedom to those who have been prisoners to sin, to break the chains of canceled sin and to set the prisoner free. And he's inviting you into that life of freedom today. Jesus goes ahead and says, and recovery of sight for the blind, again, physical or spiritual? Yes. All right. Both. We see that Jesus goes on through the gospel of Luke 
to literally heal people who are physically blind and they're able to see again. But he's also about the work of healing those who are spiritually blind. And sadly, we see that he faces much more resistance from people who are spiritually blind than he does to those who are physically blind. And what I'm saying here has nothing to do with the power of Jesus and or lack of power in one instance versus another. I'm not talking about that, but we do see that it seems easier to heal the physically blind than the spiritually blind. He faces much more resistance from those who are spiritually blind, who assume that their vision of the world was already whole and does not need any completion or correction or healing. And so they reject what Jesus has to offer. They refuse to receive his vision if it would cost them giving up their own way of seeing things. Is that you today? Maybe you have a perspective of the world and you're entrenched in it and you can't see anything different. And you know that you felt the Holy Spirit chipping away and drawing at you and nagging in a way at you but you've resisted it because it would mean giving up the way that you have seen the world and you don't want to give up your view of the world. You don't want to see it from somebody else's view. You think your view is complete and whole and doesn't need any correction. If that's you today, then the spirit is confronting that in you and saying, just like Jesus experienced, you're resisting the healing that can come for those who are spiritually blind. Jesus goes on to say he's come to set the oppressed free, to set the oppressed free. We obviously, again, get the echoes of their history and of the modern day as Jesus is teaching this. They're still experiencing oppression as a people, the most uh, oppressed group of people in the history of the world in so many ways. And Jesus is bringing this hopeful message of freedom from oppression. And he's pushing back against the reality of oppression in the world, physical or spiritual. Yes, both. And we're called to be a part of pushing back against both wherever we find it. As Jesus goes on here, he shows that he's talking about, he makes it clear that he's talking about not just their history and not just about the people of Israel, but that this promise of freedom from oppression is for anyone who's experiencing what it means to be an outcast, who's experiencing what it means to be rejected, who's experiencing what it means to be an outsider, even those who have been outcast and rejected and made the outsider by the Jewish people. And anyone who is not a Jewish person would be considered a Gentile. And Jesus is making it clear that this promise is going to the Gentiles as well. And it's going to those that we have seen as the outsider and as the outcast. And it says that the people's response to Jesus is that first they are hanging on every word. They are loving what Jesus has to say. And then when he begins to press here, as we pull out and go uh, through what I think is all the way to verse 30 in this passage, we see that the people begin to press back against Jesus. They become infuriated as Jesus starts talking about including these people that they don't want to include. They have seen 
their lives as these privileged lives of being the chosen people of God. And they don't want anyone else in on that chosenness. So when Jesus starts talking about the Gentiles, that place of privilege gets threatened and they begin to push back. And to those with privilege, equality starts to feel like oppression. To those who are used to privilege, equality sounds like oppression because they think they're going to lose their position and that place of privilege if it gets opened up to everyone else. We see this still happening in our world today and in very recent American history. This week on Monday, we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, memorial holiday for Dr. King. Um, and I want to always challenge us. Uh, the, the, the posts are beautiful. The quotes are beautiful. He's such an inspiring speaker and writer, so gifted in the way that he casts that vision for justice. But I want to challenge you always, before you post a quote, ask yourself, have I read a full sermon? Have I gone onto YouTube and done the basic work of listening in context to a full speech? Even as I have a dream speech, listen to the full context of that before you pick out one line to share. You'll get critiqued, you'll get challenged. It has messed me up to engage with that process. And I invite you to be messed up by it too. I always want to show these images uh, every year because we get so many images and so many quotes. And I always want to, for myself, to come back to these images, to remember that he wasn't just a voice for justice, but he also felt the weight of injustice and paid the cost for it. This is what we always do to our prophets. This is what we do to our prophets. And when we're confronted by truth, this is so often the way that we respond. We turn prophets into poets so that we can marvel at the beauty of their words from a safe and disembodied distance. And that distance gives us the opportunity to reinterpret their words out of their context, to reinterpret them to mean what we want them to mean and to support what we want to support. This is what we do to prophets. We call them heretics and we burn them at the stake. And then when enough time passes, we turn around and we light candles in their honor. And we talk about how great they were. This is what we do to prophets. We hold them in our memory so we don't have to deal with them getting in our faces. This is what we do. And this is what the people of Jesus's own community tried to do to him, the people who witnessed him growing up, when they realized what this kingdom meant, when they realized how far this thing was going to go, they rejected their king. When they realized they could not contain him, when they realized that they could not control him, they tried to kill him. And it literally says that this mob of people grabbed Jesus, grasped him and rushed him out to the edge of a cliff and they were about to throw him off of a cliff. And this gives you a context in, in history. Uh, this is what they would do when stoning a person. They would first throw them down from a height and then they would complete the job 
by throwing down stones on them until they were dead. And that would become their burial place under the rocks with which they had been stoned. This is what they're trying to do to Jesus. They can't contain him. They can't control him. So they want to kill him. And we get this miracle where it says that Jesus passes through the crowd and they are unsuccessful in their attempt. We don't know. Luke doesn't give us any indication of like how this happened, what Jesus did to pass through the the crowd. A lot of different uh, scholars have suggested that maybe Jesus causes some kind of temporary blindness and then he's able to pass through and escape. We don't, we don't know. Maybe a greater miracle would be not temporary blindness, but temporary sight. That the people suddenly have this moment of their eyes get opened and they see what it is they're about to do and to whom. And they're convicted and they step back and Jesus in the power of the spirit and the grace of the father walks free. We don't exactly know, but it wasn't the time. We know that much. And so Jesus walks through the crowd. Jesus completes this by making this statement at the end of Isaiah that he's come to do all of these different things. And the final thing is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, scholars across the board agree um, that what, what is Isaiah is most likely referring to here is what's known as the year of Jubilee in the history of Israel. It's found in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, uh, and this um, instruction for the people to observe a year of Jubilee. It's a part of the larger Sabbath cycle that God gives to his people after setting them free from slavery in Egypt as a part of his covenant, what it looks like to live as his people and for him to be their God. And so the cycle looks like this, every seven days, there's a Sabbath day. And to a people who had just spent centuries in, in uh, centuries enslaved to a foreign power, this idea that once a week is a day of rest and this reminder that you are not just what you can produce, you are more than what your body can produce. You are more than that. You are mine. You are my child. And so one day a week, you'll remember that and you will pause and cease from all of your work and you'll experience the peace and shalom and rest of living in the Sabbath. Then beyond that, there's a seven year cycle. And so the Sabbath day is every seven days, but there's also a Sabbath year that happens every seven years. And this isn't just to give the people rest, but also to give the land rest. This gift of inheritance that God has given to his people of this promised land. He says, you're going to honor the land. You're going to care for my creation. You're going to care for my creation. That's a part of what this means. And so every seven years, you're going to pause. You're going to let the land rest. You're not going to farm it. You're not going to grow anything on it. You're going to give it a chance to be restored and renewed. Then that hyper Sabbath, that next level. If every seven days is a Sabbath day, if every seven years is a Sabbath year, then after seven cycles of seven years, so after 49 years, the 50th year is to be set aside as the year of Jubilee. And if you're going to rest on the Sabbath day from your work, and if the land's going to rest in the Sabbath year, 
then what happens at the year of Jubilee is absolutely remarkable. In the year of Jubilee, every debt forgiven. Every debt forgiven. In the year of Jubilee, if you had to sell your land to someone else because you were in such financial straits that you were forced to sell the very inheritance that God gave to your family, if you had to sell that away, then in the year of Jubilee, that land comes back to you. You get that land back. And if there's anyone who is, who is a servant in, in the sense of enslaved because they were in such financial straits that they had to sell themselves into ens enslavement in order for their uh, family to survive. Then God says in the 50th year, in the year of Jubilee, all set free. Everyone set free. The beauty of this is that it's designed and built into the rhythm of the life of the people of Israel. That poverty will never be something that is a permanent reality for anyone. That bondage will never be something that's a permanent reality for anyone, but instead the permanent reality is going to be hope. That you know that Jubilee is coming, that freedom is coming, that forgiveness of debts is coming. Hang on and hope and wait, it is coming. G.K. Chesterton says, there is one thing that brings radiance to everything. It is the idea that there is something around the corner. And God built that sense of hope into the rhythm of the lives of his people every 50 years. So in the average lifespan of every person, they would get to experience it at least once, built in to the reality of their lives. Now, the problem is, as you go back through the Old Testament record, and as you study even the broader historical record, we can find no confirmation anywhere that the people of Israel actually observed this practice, that the year of Jubilee was actually ever carried out. That's heartbreaking, but we take a step back and we realize, of course, because if I'm the one that paid for the land, I'm not giving it back for free. I'm sorry you're in that situation, but you need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps like I did. And you need to work your way out of that. Or to the person who is benefiting off of the servanthood of someone else. I'm not going to set you free. You're worth too much to me. Heartbreaking. And yet it's the reality. And we know that that is human reality. And so they rejected Jubilee. And it never happened in their history. Until. Until one day in this little backwoods synagogue in this tiny little town called Nazareth, this itinerant preacher rolls up the scroll of Isaiah after reading this passage, hands it back to the attendant, sits down, which is what a teacher would do when they were getting ready to begin their sermon. And we get one sentence of a sermon from Jesus. What is his exposition of this passage from that day? Jesus says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Sermon complete. That's it. That's it. And it's so beautiful. It never happened in their history until this moment in Nazareth. And the people witnessed the reality of Jubilee right 
in front of them. That reality is here today. Luke doesn't tell us anything else that Jesus said as far as his sermon on that passage. We get that one line, which could mean that was the first line of a longer sermon, or it could mean that was the whole sermon. And the truth is, every other sermon that's ever been preached about Jesus since that day, that's been the content of every sermon. It is simply everything you've ever hoped for, everything God ever promised is fulfilled in the name of Jesus. Jesus is Jubilee, and he's fulfilling that today. In what way do you need good news? In what way do you need to respond to the good news of the full invitation of the gospel, the full reality of Jesus? In what way do you need to experience freedom from the things that have you imprisoned? In what way? Do you need to experience release from oppression and the opening of your eyes to be able to see from his perspective? All of that is possible today because of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. Jesus is Jubilee. Jesus, thank you for the reality of your truth, that you are the truth. We love you so much. We're moved by the beauty of your life. That that day, that sermon, it was fulfilled and every promise is fulfilled in your life, in your life. You are the fulfillment. And we embrace you fully, even though we know that means surrendering ourselves fully. And we tell you, we want all of you and you can have all of us. And we want to experience you as the Jubilee. Amen.